Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from NYU Langone Hospital in New York City and Los Angeles, California. Don't forget to check out our other episodes and please enjoy the show. The first thing I should say is true puberty is breast development, estrogen, or testicular development and testosterone. Pubic hair, underarm odor, underarm hair, oftentimes we think of that as puberty, right? But actually it's not true puberty, it's actually adrenarchy. The adrenal glands which sit on top of our kidneys are in charge of hair and odor. So that's kind of a separate process. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with actor, comedian, writer, and producer Nick Kroll. Nick created the hit animated musical comedy series, Big Mouth, which chronicles the lives of a group of adolescents as they navigate hormone-related adversity throughout puberty. Also joining us is pediatric endocrinologist, Dr. Emily Breitbart. Pediatric endocrinology is the field of medicine that focuses on hormone development and abnormalities from infancy to young adulthood. Dr. Breitbart maintains a clinical practice at NYU's Langone Hospital and frequently contributes research articles to leading medical journals in her field. The title of today's episode on the podcast is I'm Going Through Changes. Adolescent Hormones and the Science of Puberty. Hello, Nick and Emily. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, Nick, it's fair to describe Big Mouth as a musical comedy series, yes? Yes, that's fair to describe it as such. Okay. Because every episode has a song in it. So did you envision the show having such a prominent music component from the beginning? Uh, We always knew that there would be music on the show, and especially because the show is about adolescence and puberty, which is such a elevated time emotionally that certain times songs would be the best ways to express or or, uh, dig in on certain subject matters that just sometimes need need a little extra oomph. Right. Now, I think that in a comedy context, when you put something into song, it kind of presses the gas on the funny level. Mm -hmm. You know, at least in my experience, Mm -hmm. if someone is speaking normal dialogue and they bust into song, regardless of genre, it's just funny to me. Yeah, I think we, I mean, I think the first song that we pitched when we pitched the show was a song in the second episode of the show, the character Jessie, voiced by Jessie Klein, gets her period for the first time on a class trip to the Statue of Liberty. And... That was based on a friend of ours who, when we told her about the show, a friend of ours from middle school, she was like, oh, are you going to talk about how I got my period at the Statue of Liberty? And we're like, we didn't know that. And it's like, oh, of course we didn't know that because she wasn't going to tell us that when we were 13 years old. And the first song we pitched was like, oh, would it be funny if there was a tampon that looked like Michael Stipe singing a song called (laughs) Everybody Bleeds? And, you know, you can have Jesse 
talking about it, how embarrassing it is. And we have her having a conversation with the Statue of Liberty about it. But then this sort of super heightened emo experience of what that could feel like. It, it just, it, as you said, it sort of steps on the gas a little bit. And mm-hmm. I would say it heightens it comedically, but it also just heightens it emotionally. And what we found on on Big Mouth is oftentimes when you increase the emotional realities of it, you increase the comedic realities of it and, and vice versa. So walk me through how a song comes together. I mean, that one, for example, or either the ones by the the hormone monsters is uh, is Mark the composer is he in the writers room with you guys or is it something that he does on his own he's on his own i mean what usually happens is we'll have like a another example of a song is the girls i think it was season 2 i can't remember what season is uh where Jesse and Missy go to a korean spa uh, this is based off uh, one of our co-creators, Jennifer Flack, at going to the Korean spa with her daughter and looking at the myriad of different bodies. And that we were like, let's do a song um, that's eventually we called I Love My Body. And it was sort of an anthem for women and girls and their bodies. And we we're like, so we'll go to Mark and be like, this is going to take place in a Korean spa. And it's going to be sung by Connie, voiced by Maya Rudolph. And we wanted to have maybe like a Donna Summer vibe to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And here's an outline of where we are in the episode. And here's not necessarily lyrics, but here are some, you know, some story points, but also some ideas and jokes and like a paragraph. And then he'll go off and come back to us with a very, very loose demo. And then we uh, work with him on that being like, great, the song, the vibe is right. The lyrics are not hitting here, here and here. Or sometimes it's like, oh, you know what? We pitched you a Donna Summer song, but it really should be a Jackson 5 song or a Nina Simone song or whatever it is if we we got it wrong. And then we just go in and, and work the lyrics with him piece by piece. So the the writers do contribute lyrics. You know, the, the beauty of Mark is he's a, a musician and composer, but he is also very funny. He has a strong comedy background. So in the specific case with him, we found... Oftentimes it's better to tell him what's not working than it is to try to pitch him lyrics. Right. Um, And he'll come back with different rounds of being like, what about this? What about that? And we're like, great. This is still sticking with us. This is still not working. And and then it's just a little, it's more surgical, but it's still letting him figure out the solution than us trying to tell him what the lyrics should be. Okay. And then so when you're actually cutting vocals, are you doing that? in the same session that you're doing dialogue or is that its own thing too? We actually let Mark cut the vocals. Um, you know, in the before times, uh, oftentimes people would go to his studio uh, in LA, but now oftentimes it's him on a Zoom into our recording studios, wherever we're, we are recording vocals yeah. uh, for the rest of the show. He'll record remotely, but the rest of the show is cut by our editors. But in the case of of lyrics and stuff, he's cutting all of that. He's really producing the songs entirely himself. You're doing the vocals in the same sessions that you would do dialogue and stuff like that. Yes, I mean, again, it depends. Sometimes we have separate sessions just to record songs. It it happens schedule-wise that oftentimes it's like, let's now just get it all in one session. And at this point, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the 
the two main male hormone monsters, Maury and Rick. I also want to note that because one of the great songs on there, What You Gonna Do, the kind of signature piece for Rick, it's the stamina for you to like speak <laughs> in that voice must be really insane. Like to sing a whole song because he's kind of a gurgling mess. Yes, well, thank, thank you for recognizing that. Only a musician would understand the the idea of the vocal stamina of it. Um, my records can be somewhat monstrous, uh, pun intended, I guess, uh, of doing Nick and Rick and Lola and Coach Steve and then the other, you know, smaller characters that I do. We used to have recording all of us together and we would improvise in the booth all day and I would fill in for other people. So there are certain days that were like, by the end of the day, I was pretty run ragged. Um, singing, I found, because I'm still not a trained singer, I still find my voice is more torn up after singing as any character, let alone Rick, than I am doing um, regular vocal recordings all day. Um, I could use some tips on that. Singing that Rick song, I, I really love that song. I'm glad you like that song. I really love that song, too. You know, we went to Mark and said... You know, it's the end of this season, and it it's a larger philosophy for the show. Rick, in particular, based on his catchphrase, was is what's gonna do? And he, you know, <laughs> he says this as a joke, but it's actually a, a very beautiful, larger statement of, of philosophy on life, mm -hmm. which is, what are you gonna do? You know, there's just certain things that are out of your control. It was after a season long uh, arc on anxiety, and part of what we learned about dealing with anxiety. When we asked psychologists and, and specialists about like how should kids deal with anxiety, and there are not many things you can actually, I mean, there's breathing and there's gratitude. And out of gratitude came the gratitude, a character that Zach Galifianakis did. <laughs> and for me personally, it's, 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 it's some level of, you know, you have to kind of let go a bit of just, and, and I think Rick talking about what are you gonna do and, and, and really letting go of control it's a very hard thing to do, but I have found very useful in my own life when I feel anxious or filled with anxiety. Yeah. And it's a good glass half full characterization of Rick, because I think if it weren't in the anxiety season, if it were kind of couched in this Nick uh, feeling inadequate, underdeveloped, it's more of like a defeatist's anthem. You <laughs> yes. Know what I mean? Yes. Um, but could you just give us a quick primer on what the hormone monsters are? Sure. You know, the show is built, it started with Andrew, voiced by John Mulaney, having a hormone monster. Um, you know, when we started the show, my co-creators were like, well, we think Andrew should have like a hormone monster. And I immediately responded, Andrew, touch yourself. Touches of it. <laughs> and it was that voice and that sentiment, and that became the primer for the show and the hormone monsters, which is that desire, sexual desire, anger, impulse, id, uh, that I think really grows in kids at that age and then is a struggle, another struggle with it uh, or, or come to terms with it and embrace it. So the hormone, everyone's got a different hormone monster. Some kids have the same hormone monster, but they behave differently with each kid. So Andrew had this character, Maury, and then when it was time for Nick to have a hormone monster, one of my other characters, Coach Steve, it turns out still has his hormone monster because of a delayed uh, adolescence he never quite got through. So his hormone monster was sort of older and broken, and that's the voice of Rick who is, yes, you can't have my gift. 
uh, and he's got one eye and he's missing a leg and he's on a cane because he was originally built for for an older man who should not have a hormone monster. And we thought, you know what? That's actually a better hormone monster for Nick to have because his his puberty and adolescence, as mine was, I was a late bloomer, at least in my mind, felt slightly broken or felt behind. Yeah. Then the the ladies, the girls have hormone monstresses. Maya Rudolph voices Connie, the main hormone monstrous. And then there's a period of time where, where Nick is figuring stuff out and Connie was his hormone monster for a while. And I think that was sort of a fun story point, but then also, as I talked through it in therapy, was a way to talk about someone like myself who had a couple older sisters and really people who can hold masculine and feminine at the same time. Um, so Nick, the character's relationship to Connie, the hormone monstrous, was a symbol of his hormonal development being slightly different than what it was like for Andrew and Maury, a, a very straightforward kind of classic adolescent boy with a incredibly high libido desire for uh, masturbating and ejaculating. Right. I guess I knew, I knew about the late bloomer thing from a couple sources. One, I saw you tell Jimmy Kimmel that you didn't get pubic hair until high school. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, you know, about 20 years ago when I, I used to go to Rafifi and see you and Jesse Klein do stand up. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was like, that was kind of a central topic just about like, just, just being very comfortable volunteering the details of sexual misadventures, body malfunctions, dysfunction, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe this is a product of being a comedian, but like, I would imagine at the time in high school that that would, I mean, for me, puberty and most people, it was like a, a real source of shame and insecurity, regardless of where you were on the spectrum. And I'm assuming that because you're a comedian, you're able to make light of that. But in hindsight, did you always have that sort of perspective on it? Um, no, I mean, yes and no. I think uh, the first thing I ever did back 20 years ago around then at Rafifi, the first thing I ever did was a book about bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvah pictures from the oh, 70s, right. the night bar yeah, mitzvah yeah, disco. Yeah, yeah. So we were, I, I, for whatever reason, I was exploring some of that from early on. I think that part of that is, I think we're, we're interested in those moments that are seminal to us and clearly something about my puberty, my being a late bloomer, had a very strong effect, I mean, informed who I was. And I think, as you mentioned, filled, fills a lot of people with shame, but I think it's such a, such a foundational time in life mm -hmm. about who we become, what our insecurities are, what our sexual desires are, what our, who our, our friends are, how our relationship to our parents evolves. So I think it's just always felt like such a rich area for excavation. And yeah. then separately for me, being a late bloomer, I think really informed who I was. Like, I think it, I was small, mm -hmm. um, and I think it made me have to exercise other muscles, like my sense of humor or my powers of observation to make myself seem more impressive. But the other side was I was very aware of my late bloomerness uh, from my just being, again, observing other people and the books that my mom was giving me to read, like, am I normal? And or that there's a documentary. And then like those elements, I think, 
made me feel inadequate and where that led to some useful things of, of working on my humor or working on everything else also left me with some emotional scars that are things that I you know, truly will talk through in therapy and then go into my writer's room and work on and then work on things in my writer's room and then bring it to therapy. Mm. Uh, and so much of it is from that that era. Well, you guys do all of it so well. Thank you. Um, and there's there's a sixth season coming out? Season six comes out uh, this fall, yeah. Okay, we'll look forward to that. So, Emily, I think a good way to start is is to ask, hypothetically speaking, say a 14-year-old Nick Kroll walked into your office concerned that he might be underdeveloped. What are you, what are you trained to do to offer an assessment? Sure. Yeah, so typically we consider puberty delayed in a girl if there's no breast development by age 13, and in a boy if there's no we call gonadarchy or any evidence of testicular enlargement by the age of 14. So, you know, we would talk about development and any signs of anything going on, any any hair, any underarm odor, any signs of testicular enlargement, although most boys don't tend to notice that at the beginning and most parents definitely don't. So mm -hmm. we talk about the history. We talk about the family history. So, you know, what age did your mom have her first period, which is what we call menarche. For males, it's oftentimes for the father to really remember when they went through puberty unless they were sort of off the average. So if they went through average puberty, typically they won't remember. If they were early or late, they tend to remember. And it's funny you said the thing about bar mitzvahs. Um, in New York, obviously, we have a you know quite a large proportion of patients who are Jewish. And so if I know they are, oftentimes I'll ask the father, you know, well, is your voice changed at your bar mitzvah? Like, they'll remember that or their mother will remember that. And of course, doing a physical exam is super important. We have something called a Prater orchidometer, which I have here. It's basically a string of beads and it looks like a necklace. Uh, you wouldn't know looking at it, but these are all ellipsoids. And basically, um, these are different sized testicles. So we'll actually do a testicular exam and basically anything, these are by volume. So one ml, two mls, or three ml is considered prepubertal. Um, and anything four mls or greater is considered pubertal. So we'll actually look to see if there's any sort of testicular enlargement, because that's the first, usually the first sign of real puberty. And if there isn't, most of the time, if they're 14, you know, we'll reassure you. You'll say, you know, you're likely just a late bloomer. We're probably just going to watch you for a little longer, you know, come back in four to six months and I'll, we'll re-examine you. Typically, if they're age 15 or 16 and nothing's happening, you know, then we start to do some workup. We'll get some labs, um, look at the pituitary hormones to make sure they seem to be functioning properly. Sometimes we'll actually give a jumpstart of testosterone. So we'll actually give a series of three or four intramuscular injections of testosterone to see if we can kind of like jumpstart puberty, almost like the body is like oh, wait, hey, I'm supposed to be making this, uh, you know, whoops. Uh, and it'll kind of spur the process along. We'll do that in cases of boys that are pretty distressed. So if they're having a lot of psychosocial issues around their delayed puberty, we'll try that. Or if, you know, they're heading into 16 or older, you know, we will try that to see if their body sort of responds. Um, but, you know, typically most boys that come in with delayed puberty for the by and large, uh, are just what we call constitutional delay, just later bloomers. Um, and a few, of course, have like organic, you know, disease processes or genetic issues that they are not sort of like the coach, like where they're you know, not going to go into puberty on their own. 
But I guess some of the most rewarding cases we see, I'll have boys who I've been following for, you know, with delayed puberty and they'll get really anxious about it. And, you know, I had one boy I followed through the pandemic before the pandemic and then sort of like I was examining him every few months and then the pandemic happened and, you know, kind of we were locked down for a while. And then all of a sudden his mom, you know, messaged me with a picture of this boy who like all of a sudden started to just grow like he just started to spurt up, you know, later than all his friends. And those can be some of the most rewarding cases where honestly just waiting, just patience, just cures all. I mean, and that's literally, you're describing what, uh, 30 years ago, I don't know if it was, I don't know if I just went to my doctor or if I went to a specialist, but I was at that point where I was like, mom, I want you to take me somewhere to just get a sense of what's going on. And, and basically it was exactly that, which was, I was late, but I wasn't like so late that it was where there was testosterone or anything like that. But I was seeking out that help almost exactly how you've described it. Yeah, it could be really distressing, especially for boys who play sports. You know, all of a sudden yeah. they're in the locker room. They're seeing what's going on with other with other boys. They're seeing them become muscular. The boys who are growing taller and becoming more muscular, becoming more dominant in the sport. And it's, you know, it can be really hard. That's what happened. I was a love sports and was like a real athlete growing up and around puberty is when my interest started to wane because I like, you know, you move in, in baseball Matt, I know you grew up near me, like, you know, you, there's like, whatever, senior league, and then there's what was called Babe Ruth. And that when you hit Babe Ruth is when you hit like the regular size fields. And all of a sudden, my double to left field was like a pop up to the end of the infield. And it, I just didn't have the size or the strength anymore compared to everybody else. And as someone whose identity was built around his a lot of me at that point wasn't around comedy. It was around being, you know, a really athletic kid. It was jarring for sure to all of a sudden be slower, not only smaller, but just slower and not as strong to be able to do things, um, compete on the level that I was competing on. Yeah. Besides the fact of being in the locker room and seeing kids with pubes and bigger dicks and all that stuff, we were just all of a sudden like, we, all of it, all of it became a bummer. That's a great source of trauma. Yeah. So I would imagine all the things that you're describing, Emily, like having to have candid conversations with both the kids and the parents and physical exams. I mean, it just seems like a very dicey proposition. Kids who's a kid who's all already going to be insecure and then all of a sudden they need to have their genitals examined. So I'm just assuming that like your bedside manner is a key thing. Like, could you talk about how you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, it is hard. I, I At the point that a boy or girl is coming in worried about delayed puberty, often enough, there's significant personal anxiety around it that they're motivated, like, you know, like what Nick said, like he was concerned. So they usually kind of accept that they need to be examined and that that's this is part of the process. But certainly we have many kids on both ends of the spectrum, those that are coming in for concern for early puberty and those that are coming in for concern of delayed puberty where they're really shy. I actually think I have probably more nervousness and jitters around exams in the earlier mm. when I'm talking about early puberty because I'm talking about like six or seven year olds, usually girls in that in, yeah. um, in that end that they're just not comfortable and they're sort of still childlike and that's where I see the most nervousness or even tears about it. And you mm. kind of have to navigate it with the parents and make them feel comfortable and try to give them some options. Like, do you want to change it to a gown? 
Do you want to not change into a gown? You know, who do you want to be in the room? Do you want the curtain pulled? It's like trying to really make them feel as comfortable as possible. Um, but it is, you know, it is definitely one of the harder parts of being an endocrinologist is trying to, you don't want to ever make someone feel violated or uncomfortable. Yeah, I I want to shout out my sister, uh, Vanessa Kroll Bennett, and her partner, Karen Natterson, Karen Natterson. Emily, I don't know if you know them, but they're, they have a, a podcast called The Puberty Podcast, and Kara is a pediatrician and now writer and my sister has been working with young women for many years doing uh, started out with like doing after school program athletics for girls but in doing so has discovered and seen so much of what's going on with young women especially as puberty starting much earlier now is that fair to say that historically it's they're getting they're getting having pubertal uh elements of their life happening younger than that used to be. Is that true? Yeah, it definitely is true. I mean, we're definitely seeing puberty earlier these days. And, you know, we can kind of talk about like, well, why is that happening? But we know that there's been about a decrease of two to three months per decade for the last, you know, 36 to 40 years mm. in terms of breast development and when, when, when that occurs. So, we're definitely seeing that the ages of both breast development and menarche, that first period, are becoming younger. Mostly this is in girls, and I'm sort of talking about it, you know, from the girl standpoint. We're also mm -hmm. seeing in boys less less sort of drastic. But, um, but yes, that is correct. We're seeing it earlier. And so sort of the talks, I think that, you know, we're talking about your sister having these discussions, like all of these discussions that we're having with kids that may have been in maybe fifth grade, uh, when we were growing up, really have to kind of be moved earlier because you're not going to capture everyone mm. uh, if you're doing it at that point. Mm -hmm. So to what do you attribute this? Yeah, I mean, that's like the million dollar question. Why are we seeing this decrease? There's a lot of different theories. The first is that we do know that the trend of earlier onset of puberty parallels the increasing prevalence of obesity. Mm. So there does seem to be a link towards the higher body weight and earlier initiation of puberty. So that's one thing. I mean, there hasn't necessarily been a causative study, like a study that's shown causation directly, but the trends really do match up. For one thing, even in the pandemic, uh, there was a study in Italy that came out a couple of months ago that basically saw earlier puberty during the pandemic, during the lockdown. And this has actually been anecdotal, even by pediatric endocrinologists in the U.S. We don't know, like, why is that? Is it because people were locked down and probably had more weight gain? You know, most kids during the pandemic, most adults, right, put on some weight because we were all not exercising much and eating more and sort of very sedentary. So... Is it the screen time? Is it sleeping habits that were changed? Is it stress? Did that change something? Could it be staying indoors more and having more, you know, exposure to endocrine disruptors in our homes as opposed to being outside that contributed to that? And we don't really know the answer. Is there anything I've, I've heard about like hormones in the milk and all that in, pro, in animal hormones, stuff like that, antibiotics and things that are we're giving our all the animals that we consume? There, has, there hasn't really been any super convincing evidence on that. And it's a, a question I get from parents all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been studies or some studies that show, oh, well, phytoestrogens and phthalates and all these plastics we have in our environment. You know, we see higher levels in girls who went through puberty early. And, and then some studies completely debunk that and say that, no, we didn't find any causation. So I think it's really hard to make 
a blanket statement on that because the studies have just been so discordant. But typically what advice I give is like, yeah, if you can buy organic, if you can afford that, if it's not a hardship, for sure, dairy and and meat products like mm-hmm. would be ideal to be, be organic. But we really don't know. I think there's a lot of research into that. It's a hot button sort of topic and um, it'll be interesting to see what we find. But there's not really been something in specific that we've found that like this is why. We do know, you know, as opposed to years and years ago when menarche in the um, 19th century, the average age of the first period was like age 17, you know. And of course, now we're, we have good nutrition and great sanitation. And most people who who are in, and may not be able to struggle with food are probably going to get more caloric things. Like, you know, now healthy eating is expensive, right? So as opposed to then, now it seems like the clocks have sort of turned. So we're all sort of probably have overnutrition and, and better hygiene. And that's probably a lot of what has caused the earlier development. Hmm. But of course, now the trends in the last sort of century are much more sort of, I think, related to what's going on in the environment and probably, you know, obesity. Let's zoom out for a second. Could you just give us a basic understanding of just the mechanics of puberty? Like what triggers it to start? Is there like a master switch? Yeah, so there is. So in the hypothalamus, which is a part of our brain's there's something called GnRH, which is gonadotropin hormone releasing hormone. Okay, so basically the hormone that controls our pituitary gland, like the master gland is in the hypothalamus, and then it's the key regulator of hormone cascade in the body. And it starts with a pulsatile secretion. So it's sort of on and off, on and off, and usually mostly secreted overnight. And it kind of triggers what we call our FSH and our LH, our follicle stimulating hormone and our luteinizing hormone which is in our pituitary gland, to signal to either the ovaries or the testicles to start producing estrogen and testosterone. That's the sort of that GnRH, that trigger is what sets off that whole cascade. So the first sign of puberty in girls is really breast development or breast buds. Um, that's the very first time that your hypothalamus is secreting that GnRH and that, you know, there's the signal going on and going to those ovaries. And most girls start with that. 15% of girls have pubic hair before the development of breast tissue. But again, it's sort of sort of unrelated, related, but unrelated. And the, from the first sign of breast development to getting a period is about two to two and a half years. And in that two to two and a half years is when your growth spurt happens, you know, when you're growing, you know, three to five inches a year, that's what's going on in that process. And the breasts continue to mature, you know, through that two to two and a half years of puberty. Of course, girls do grow after they have their menarche, usually, you know, sometimes as much as two to three inches. So there's also this sort of fallacy that, oh, you got your period and you're done growing. But that's not actually true. You actually do have some growth left. In boys, the earliest sign of puberty is that increase in testicular volume, which, like, as I said before, is kind of usually not detectable. So in girls, it's kind of apparent, you know, when you have breast bud development, it's sort of obvious, but in boys, it's not as obvious. So oftentimes parents have zero idea of when their son is starting puberty because it's just, they're not looking at them. They're not, they're showering on their own. You know, they're not, they're not seeing that. Um, so, so when you're, me- and you're measuring testicular yeah. volume, I mean, are you literally just like laying that necklace device down next to someone's testicles? Yeah. So basically, yeah, I'll take this and then I'll match it up. I mean, I'll, I'll explain what it is. A lot of boys yeah. will like kind of figure it out. Um, but yeah. yeah, you're kind of matching it up. Um, 
So we get the most accurate measurement. Of course, we can kind of like guesstimate, but typically it's easier to just sort of match this up and, and get our testicular volume. And as I said, like anything greater, four cc's and greater signals that testosterone production has begun and the testicles are starting to enlarge. So that's what we're really looking for in terms of where we're at in puberty, because it tells us, it really kind of gives us, especially if we're seeing patients for growth, let's say we're seeing patients for short stature and not for puberty, but puberty is extremely relevant because if you're already advanced to 20 cc testy, let's say like you're probably pretty much done with your growth, right? So yeah, for boys, the first sign is the testicular enlargement. Then typically you'll see some penile growth and pubic hair. There's a small percentage of boys who will have pubic hair before any of this starts. And then on the later part of puberty is when you actually see the voice change, okay? Because that's actually the vocal cords increasing in length as the larynx actually has its own growth spurt. So towards the end of puberty is typically when you see the voice change. Not everyone goes through everything in the exact order that should happen. So sometimes you'll see boys whose voice will change, you know, earlier on in puberty. And it's the same like two, two and a half year growth spurt in boys um, that really starts after that testicular enlargement begins. And that's when you're seeing boys typically become really hungry and they're eating everything. You know, they're really going mm. through that growth spurt. And typically it's like a year to two years later on average than, you know, than girls. And something that just occurred to me, I'm, have you ever treated transgender patients and I, i'm just wondering is there like is there a protocol if an adolescent says they want to interrupt puberty yeah so there's lots of protocols there is actually a really great transgender center where uh, where i practice and i'm i'm not part of that i you know there's like people who specifically are trained in how to do that but there are mm. absolutely protocols and you know how to stop puberty and actually what we give to stop puberty and this is Oftentimes we'll do this in transgender medicine to sort of, you know, stop cis puberty. So if you're thinking of transitioning, then, you know, you don't want to necessarily have breast development, but we actually do the same thing in precocious puberty. So if you're going through early puberty, we can actually stop puberty by giving GnRH. So funnily enough, we give the very hormone that triggers puberty hmm. because if you give it and it's constantly on, it'll actually eventually tire out and shut off. How'd they figure that out? I don't know how they first figured it out. You know, I think, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, but it's many years ago because we've been using it, I mean, for a long time, way before I started practicing. Mm -hmm. And so we give that and we can stop and halt puberty for various reasons. And we use it a lot for precocious puberty so that we can try to get puberty to a more average, an average age where it's so we can salvage growth and we can, you know, make psychologically make it more comfortable or a lot. We want to try to put people alongside their peers if they're starting puberty very early. Okay. And because you're the first endocrinologist that we've had, I, I would like to task you with just giving our listeners an understanding of how the endocrine system is put together. I mean, you mentioned the adrenal glands. Yeah. So basically, the endocrine system is made up of lots of glands. So as endocrinologists, we're experts in the pituitary gland, which produces not only the LH and FSH, which we've been talking about, the triggers for puberty, but produces growth hormone, produces ACTH, which is in charge of cortisol, which is our stress hormone the thyroid gland and we so we treat hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism the pancreas is a gland that's obviously implicated in in type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes so we're talking about if the pancreas is not functioning properly that's that's diabetes and so that's what another gland that we're dealing with um we deal with the parathyroid gland which is located sort of right near the thyroid gland and that's in charge of calcium homeostasis so calcium disorders hypocalcemia hypercalcemia hyperparathyroidism um so we kind of do all the glands in the body um, and yeah, we're like the hormone doctor. So we 
think about hormone pathways all the time. And we think about, you know, and the adrenal glands, like we talked to sort of about just in terms of pubic hair, but you can have adrenal gland disorders like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where you overproduce certain hormones, or you could have underproduction and you could have adrenal insufficiency. So um, like Addison's disease. So yeah, we basically think about all these hormone pathways and where there could be blockages and shunts over to this pathway from that pathway and how we'd fix it. And it's very cognitive field. We don't really do a lot of procedures, which doesn't get us great reimbursement, but um, <laughs> but we have to think about everything. And and endocrine's not a very black and white field. It's very gray, you know, because everything is sort of interrelated. And so we have to really titrate things properly. And mm-hmm. but yeah, that's what we do. We kind of we think about all your hormones. Because puberty starts in the brain, is there do you have a solid understanding of how the nervous system and endocrine system interact? In, in relation to the hormones, yes. I mean, we see a lot of patients actually, you know, unfortunately who have brain tumors or have had chemo radiation and kids who don't have normal pituitary gland function as a result of that. And we have to do a lot of hormone replacement to make them go through puberty. I mean, there's a lot of cancer patients who, who don't go through puberty on their own for various reasons. And we will have to actually put them through puberty um, mm. by giving them estrogen or testosterone. When you do that, does that change what the puberty looks like and feels like? So typically, you know, we try to emulate what would happen, meaning we, we like start with very low doses. And then over a period of, again, that two, two and a half years, we try to increase the doses um, every six months to really emulate true puberty. It's hard to say whether it feels mm-hmm. totally similar because, you know, those kids don't necessarily, you know, they don't have it to compare to. Mm-hmm. But we try to give them normal breast development. Mm-hmm. So there's some concern with, like, when you give estrogen from the outside, whether breast development is as good as sort of normal puberty. Like, there's some concern that, especially with oral estrogen, which we've kind of moved away from, that you know, the breasts have a more tubular appearance. Mm-hmm. But we really try to be very cognizant of how we're titrating their doses up. And we try to really put them on what we believe to be through sort of measuring hormones and such, like what, you know, a normal, ultimately a normal sort of estrogen dose, what's sort of equivalent to what their bodies would otherwise be producing. Mm. And then we cycle them on progesterone, ultimately, to give them to give them periods. So it's a very careful process that we do. But yeah, it's hard to know. Like, does it really feel... I mean, we know that people who go on testosterone and estrogen replacement go on to, you know, have romantic relationships and get married and have children and all that. So in that sense, we know that it sort of works. But does it sort of feel the same in terms of all the hormonal changes that we're thinking of in your show? I think so. I mean, I think that there's certainly... I have parents and like, oh, they're so moody now. And it's like, well, that's a good, that's a good thing. You know, we want, we want that to happen. That's like, mm-hmm. that's normal. Right. Yeah. Um, but it is hard to know, like, is it exactly the same? Cause we give estrogen patches. So they're actually these like clear stickers, honestly, that go on their skin, usually on their upper abdomen or lower abdomen. And we can cut them, you know, in quarters, but you can only increase them, you know, by quarters every, let's say six months. So you can't really quite emulate like the little intricate, what our bodies are doing is like pulsing out tiny little changes over time. Mm-hmm. You can't quite emulate mm-hmm. that. Sure. Nick, have you have you had a conversation about your show before with a pediatric endocrinologist? We haven't spoken to that many experts on, on the medical side, like what Dr. Breitbart does, but like we've had numerous conversations with with sex educators mm-hmm. like Shafia Zaloum, who runs the sex education program at a school in the Bay Area, and her students, 
Peggy Orenstein, another author who's worked extensively in this space of adolescent male and female sexual development and adolescence, and then read a bunch of studies and really a little more on the social side than we have on the scientific physical side. Mm -hmm. Um, With Human Resources, the Big Mouth spinoff, we spent more time talking. You know, we have talked to doctors, but less about, less in the endocrinology space and more in the, more uh, on things like depression and other elements of development or, or the human experience. And it's actually interesting because in boys, when they go through puberty, typically they have more positive sort of self-image and mood yeah. and they become more confident. And by contrast, girls, when they go through puberty, tend to become less satisfied with their appearance. And yeah. they, become, they have this tendency to like have, you know, we know that depression is higher in, I think, two to one in females compared to males. Yeah. So it actually in girls seems to have this negative, you know, not obviously not in everyone, but can have this negative uh, psychological impact as opposed to in boys, it's usually a very positive thing. How much of that do you think is cultural versus physical or, or otherwise? I think some of it's our brain wiring. I mean, I do think, you know, not a psychiatrist, but I think there are reasons why depression is higher in females. But I do think that certainly now with puberty being earlier, we do know in precocious puberty, like in girls who go through puberty early, they can be at risk for more antisocial behaviors, more at risk of depression, um, more at risk of having disruptive behaviors. We do know that there is definitely an impact, um, mm-hmm. can be. Of course, this is not everyone, but there can be this impact of going through puberty earlier and potentially having older friends and having more risk-taking behavior because you're sort of matching up with an older crowd. So I do think some of it is that girls now, you know, with the age of puberty being younger, Mm -hmm. probably not, even though their bodies may be changing, I think there is still some psychological catch-up. Like even if you're having breast development now at eight and a half, right? Like the average age of breast development, I think in African-American girls is now, is like eight years and eight months. And that's so young. So you may not be able to grapple with those mm. kind of changes at that age. You know, you could only be in like third grade at that time. Mm. Um, and so I think some of it is just sort of this mismatch of like what our bodies are doing and what our brains are really capable of understanding and sort of coping with in a way. It's troublesome. I don't like to stop puberty in girls uh, if I don't have to because I don't think that's always such great messaging either. You have to be careful. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't want to say, oh, well, stopping puberty is the answer. And we want to like, you know, not don't want your body to do what it's naturally going to do. But Mm -hmm. but I also hear the other side is, is, you know, it is sometimes hard to go through these changes. And if other girls aren't and you feel so singled out as like sort of just like what you you went through. I mean, the delayed side, you know, you can feel very singled out there too, but mm-hmm. um, those sort of ends of the spectrum can be equally distressing for different reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think it's partly what's complicated is is if you're a late developing boy, you might feel inadequate, but if you're an early developing girl, there are outside forces that can be affecting you of, of people putting sexual energy on you in a way that, I mean, it's got to be hard enough to be 11, 12, 13 and have that, but to be eight and have breasts and see breasts around our culture in that way, it just must be incredibly hard to wrap your brain around, your head around. Yeah, it can be embarrassing. I mean, you can be like, no one else has this in my class and I don't want to be the only one wearing a bra and it can be, it can be very embarrassing. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know, thinking about my own kids, right? Like, just only hope they're average. Like this is like one thing you really want them to just be average on. Yeah. And we'll see. Is this sort of trend in 
earlier development going to continue? Is it going to sort of stop at some point or, you know, because right now we do a workup for early puberty in girls because we see early puberty much more often in girls than in boys. So, you know, it's why we're kind of gearing the discussion for towards females, but we'll do a workup if they go through puberty before age eight. But that's actually kind of, there's conflicting thoughts about that. Should we really, is age eight really that early anymore? Like maybe we shouldn't be doing a whole workup unless they're earlier than six or seven, you know, because age eight's mm. really kind of in the realm of normal for certain ethnicities now. Mm. Um, so that's actually like a big debate in the field of endocrine is like, well, you know, because the workup often includes a lot of lab testing and MRI, you know, like lots of stuff that's going to be kind of traumatic sometimes for kids to go through. So should we really be doing this? Should, mm. What should our cutoff age be? Because it's probably really different now than it was 50 years ago when some of these guidelines were made. Is there a reason it's happening for, quicker for girls than it is for boys? Yeah. Is, it, is there any sense of what that is? I think in girls, some of it's more apparent. Like, again, breast development is a lot more apparent than testicular enlargement. Getting a period is a sort of like seminal event where it's, you know, there's what we call mm -hmm. spermarchy in boys. Um, it's just like, you know, nocturnal emissions, but that's not something that's no one needs to know about that. So it's like, it's just more apparent in girls. So I kind of just feel like to some degree, it's more publicized in girls because it's just more apparent. But yeah, I don't, it, it is questionable. Why are we seeing this more in girls than boys? You know, we know that there's probably like a magic sort of weight that sort of can trigger the, this GnRH from functioning. And maybe there's, you know, that's just lower in females than in males. It, it's really hard to say, but it's sort of, again, like one of these million dollar questions of like, why are we, why are we seeing yeah. this more in females? Is it, is it just because it's more apparent or is it, is there truly some hormonal difference? Is there some sort of stimulus that and trigger that's sort of at a lower set point in, in females and in males? Can I ask my final question? Yeah, please. Selfishly, <laughs> Matt. Is there anything that you would like to see us cover or try to do that we haven't done or that we could use work on doing? Hmm. That somebody who works in the field? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the delayed puberty issue obviously was, you know, well done in the show obviously we kind of talked about already mm -hmm. um well couldn't really do early puberty now because kind of the characters are sort of beyond that at this point um mm -hmm. well but we also have like little little sisters and brothers and stuff like that that sometimes we can cover some of that stuff but but early puberty yeah being i think that would be interesting um it's like from my standpoint we see like mm -hmm. you know we see irregular periods we see periods that are too heavy and like whatever I, I don't know if that would sort of go along i'm trying to think how that would like work in the show in a comedic way mm -hmm. um i would like to think about that i would say because i think there are yeah there, no yeah, no i, don't I mean, mean i think put you on the spot but it's just i think helpful. there are sort of lots of different things i mean i don't know if you i i have to say i've watched sort of when i learned I was doing this, I started watching, you know, the seasons and I'm really enjoying it. I actually really enjoyed the episode where Jesse got her period in her white shorts uh, in the Empire building. I think that spoke <laughs> to a lot of women, but in the later episodes, I'm just curious if you do, I know you explore, you know, uh, with Andrew, you explore, you know, sexuality in one of the beginning episodes, you know, he questions if he's gay. And, you know, I think that was a really great episode. I think that probably resonated with a lot of, with a lot of males, but um, is there any sort of transgender, mm -hmm. any sort of questioning that comes later in the seasons? Yeah, we do. Um, it's the top of season four. We do a story when and Nick goes to camp, Andrew goes to camp, and there's a, a storyline around it. It's a, a actress, uh, Josie Toda, who's on um, Say by the Bell, who's a transgender. And um, 
she's the actress in it, but it's a little bit more about after after she's transitioned, she goes back to the same camp that she had been at mm -hmm. and what that experience is like. But also what was what's interesting in general in these kinds of things is like how do you tell and we were encouraged very much by our writers in a lot of different storylines, but including this, which is like, how do you tell a story about what it's like to be a transgender teen or tween right now, but also that isn't necessarily about their transgenderness, right? Um, which is is complicated to figure out, but also that's our task is to to tell different kinds of stories in a way that feels that there's no difference between telling a story about like a a hetero cis boy who wants to jerk off all the time and a transgender girl who has a crush on a boy, like, you know, or a girl or whatever it is that we're telling. But we talk a little bit about, in a flashback, about her process of how she got there and talking to her parents and going to doctors and uh, hormone therapy and things like that. So you'll see it's at the top of season four, I believe, when Nick and Andrew go Super to camp. camp. Um, the first yeah. Trip. No, I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think... But yeah, I mean, obviously, from a sex ed point of view, I'm sure you've done a lot of this too. But, you know, especially if your sister is what's one of her sort of, you know, missions is talking about safe sex and, you know, all the different options. There's so many options now for teenagers in terms of how to prevent pregnancy and be safe and all that. You know, I think that's also relevant, especially mm -hmm. probably because that's somewhat of your audience and they're going to be listening to this kind of thing. Yeah. Those elements of the show are as we've talked about here, there's the scientific, there's the physical things happening to you, and then there's the emotional and social things happening to you and that you are happening right. to things that we're constantly trying to find the levels to. How are they separate? How are they intertwined? Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I could use a quick cross-reference check Nick, given that we grew up in the same part of the country at the same time. Hey, where did you guys grow up? In, is Westchester? I grew up in Westchester and Nick's in Westchester. I grew up in Greenwich. Okay. Yeah. The show I, takes place in, it seems like a Scarsdale equivalent or something. It's yeah. It's why Andrew and I went to school in white plains. Um, so we're, but it's basically it. some version of that. So eighth grade for us was sort of peak AIDS crisis mm -hmm. and how to manage that from a public health standpoint, especially with kids. Mm -hmm. And in my health class, as we're talking about sex ed, it makes me think of this. In our health class, they had someone come in. I don't know if it was like from the state board of health. I don't know if it was a paid rep who you may have had to, but this person came in and gave us a speech about how we could protect ourselves. And then at the end, she said, okay, let's do a quick Q and A about ways that you can protect yourself from contracting HIV AIDS. Anyone have any ideas? And some kid raises his hand he says, uh, yeah, don't have sex. And she says, sure, abstinence. Second kid says something else. Third kid says, wear two condoms. And she says, sure, double bag it. No, that was, yeah. that, wow. That, fair, yeah, Fairfield County was doing other work than Westchester. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I guess my last piece of advice is, of course, is double bag it. Tell mm -hmm. everybody out there. No, I'm yeah. kidding. Thank you so much for doing this, both of you. My I really pleasure. appreciate it. Emily, nice to meet you. You okay. too. Nice to meet you. We have huge fans in my office, so... Everyone says hello. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. All right, tell them I say hi. Go to Netflix on October 28th to see the season six premiere of Nick's show Big Mouth and his new stand-up special, Little Big Boy. You can learn more about Dr. Emily Breitbart's work in pediatric endocrinology at nyulangone.org. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. 
Our music is by Panoram. Our mix engineer is Lou Carlozo. Social media manager is Bailey Constas. And our digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Sari Eichenblatt and Catherine Ullman for their help with today's show. If you like today's episode, please tell a friend about us and give us a review and some stars. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.